what was that experience at Motown like? Um, that was a great experience. That was a really, really fun band. Super good, super fun. Joseph Jobert as a musical director gave us so much freedom to fuck around. I mean, (laughs) there was a lot of laughter in that pit. Let me put it that way. And as long as nobody fucked up the music, as long as the grooves were there and there were no mistakes, Joe, Joe was really cool with it. I, I really admired that about him. We had a great room for the band and we decorated it. We got some chairs in there and the couches. And, and I remember one, it was a long day, you know, and one of those like tech days, you know, and uh, we had been rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. And now we're going down to the, to the band room to chill out. And we get there and Barry Gordy is laid out on the couch asleep. And we're like, oh, yeah, now what? Buddy walks right into the room. Hey, Barry, shakes him awake. Is this the band room, man? You got to go. You got to try to get out of here. I was just like, Buddy Williams, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. If you like what you hear on the show and you want to know more, subscribe to Broadway Drumming 101 at broadwaydrumming101.com. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is the legendary, the one and only Roger Squitero. Thanks, brother. It's a pleasure to be here. One thing we discussed before we started was how what we do makes people feel good. I love playing drums. I love watching the reaction that we get when we play a rhythm or play a beat, and it makes people dance, makes people snap their fingers or stomp their feet. Tell me about how you feel about playing drums, playing percussion, and how it makes you feel. Oh, um, When I first started playing... The, you know, I started playing hand drums um, before anything. So my first, my first drumming was, was uh, hand drums. And that's a, you know, it's a very direct experience. I mean, every drummer experiences a certain physical sensation. Now you're, if you're using a stick and you hit something, the vibration goes through the stick into your hand, into your arm, etc. But when you're playing a hand drum, it's a very direct, Boom. You feel you hit that skin. Uh, there's skin on skin reaction. You feel it. It's a vibration that goes through the hand, up through the arms, into the body. So there's the physical vibration. And that's true of, of every drummer. I think with, with hands, it's a little more direct. But then there's the actual vibration itself that's in the air from the moving of sound. And that's the thing that we all react to. Um, that's the thing that we that we have that is music and it it um there's no denying that humans have a really visceral strong effect to to the sound to certain vibrational sounds and it is my personal belief that um that those sounds um can actually affect the cellular state of your body and therefore affect your mind as well uh because body mind spirits all connected it's all one and so the perception of vibration occurs on a few levels 
I really think through my work, and I actually be- tried to develop this uh, at a certain point in my career, I think that the, the, that the participation in drumming amongst other people actually raises their vibration to a certain degree that can be helpful both as a healing device physically and spiritually and mentally. I just think that, you know, putting yourself in a vibration that that is positive and feels good uh, has effects that are way beyond what we see uh, on, you know, and feel on an initial level, that it goes deep, in other words. And it's obvious when people want to dance, they feel it. They feel it in their body. They feel it, or if they're listening to a classical concert in a concert hall where they're not going to, it's not appropriate to dance, just the mental, uh, spiritual feeling that you get from absorbing those vibrations, those vibrations that have been um, um, incredibly honed um, by people that are great at what they do, and and that includes the composers and the players, create that experience. It's it's uh you know we're really we're really lucky Clayton that we do what we do because we have a constant. It's not only just that we love it, but as drummers, we have this constant experience where we're getting direct vibrational input into our body and mind that I think is really, really positive. I mean, you know, as a drummer, you go for a while without playing, man, and you start to feel a little antsy. At least I do. Most drummers I know. And um, so, you know, the great thing about being a drummer or being a musician like uh, uh, as opposed to the other arts is that we can do this at home. You know, if you create a situation where you're cool with your neighbors, etc., you don't have to have a gig to have that direct experience of vibrational experience you have between you and the drum and a rhythm. And I, I really think that certain rhythms have different power than other rhythms. And you, you can find this in, in especially in African religions where they use the power of the drum and certain rhythms that are thousands of years old, been developed, honed, time-tested, that they have extreme effects on the body uh, and the mind and the spirit. So that's a long-winded answer there. No, no, it's great. I, you know, one thing I want to ask you, you said you started out playing on hand drums. So you talk about the connection between your hands and the skin of the drum. You started out, I guess you were born and raised in D.C.? I was born and raised in D.C. Northwest, and, Northeast. I'm curious. Uh, well, I was born in Georgetown Hospital. Oh wow! And, yeah, my 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 father went to uh, George Washington University, and when he got when he graduated, uh, the first thing he did was he got a job managing a little restaurant on the around the George Washington campus, and um, so then he met my mother and they got married, and that was. They, they ran this little restaurant in Georgetown on the GW campus. It was kind of like a little diner. So uh, I was born there in Georgetown, and then my parents moved to the northern suburbs to Silver Spring, Wheaton area of Maryland when I was about five. So I was uh, just fortunate enough that I went to a new, brand-new experimental high school called John F. Kennedy High School in Wheaton, Maryland. But the first 
like maybe seven or eight years of its existence, they were trying to use a new educational technique that gave the students a lot more freedom. Uh, you could kind of create your own curriculum and you had a lot of freedom to do the work on your own, just get the work done. You didn't have to be in the classroom all the time. But the uh, real upshot of that was they hired a bunch of like beatnik-esque hippie, early hippie-esque type teachers that were able to influence me in really positive ways. So when I'm in high school, I developed these relationships with um with some of my teachers that are more personal than than you would probably get in a normal school, high school situation. It was also a small school, which enabled me to be able to participate in lots of different extracurricular activities. Now, mind you, I still hadn't played music. I was a great music lover. And what happened was my father, after his little restaurant experiences early in my life, he got a job managing a, um, a, a company that that supplied uh, jukeboxes with all the records and video games. It was a kind of a video type, early video type company, but mostly they did jukeboxes. So that means that I had ex access to all the forty fives that were happening, and my my father would just bring home a box of new forty fives. So. I was really had a lot of access to popular music when I was young, and I really loved it. Um, but I had no nobody in my house played an instrument. I was not being encouraged to play an instrument. Then, when I was in my senior year in high school, uh, I went down to Dupont Circle, which is uh, which you know from your experience in D.C. what it is. But at the time, it was like a real gathering place, kind of hippie esque, uh, bohemian gathering place. And um, so it was filled with tons of hippies and and the brothers would be there on a bench playing the conga drums. And I found myself being gravitated there. Uh, the sound of the drums just kind of pulled me in. So I became fascinated with the drum, but still just from a distance. Then to jump ahead a couple of years, um, after my first year of graduating from high school, I hitchhiked around the country. It was 1968. I ended up in Berkeley, California, and one day I uh, decided to drop acid and go up in the park, uh, Tilden Park, above above this town of Berkeley. It's a huge park. So I was up there tripping and going through the woods, and I hear this music in distance, drumming and flute. I started following it, and I came out upon this clearing, and there's a couple of brothers playing drums and a guy playing flute, and I went over there and sat on the bench with them and just listened. And I had a kind of out-of-body experience. Um, as I look back on my life now, I, I realized what that was. At the time, I had no clue. But, at the, but what was happening was, in my opinion, my higher self was telling me, this is your path. You hmm. have now arrived at the beginning of your journey. This is the beginning. All I knew was like I was high as fuck. It just was like this shit was really taking me out. I mean, I was like, going to some other place. I almost left my body. So end of that trip, I go back to Maryland, uh, go to visit my old high school English teacher who I was friends with. And I go to his office and there's a conga drum in the office. And I said, so whose drum is this? And he goes, I don't know. It's been here for about a week. You want it? And this was just after like about two weeks after I had that experience in Berkeley, and and I said, yeah, I took the drum 
And I, he said, if anybody asked for it, I'll let you know. Nobody ever asked for it. That was my first conga drum. And that was the beginning of my path. Uh, I have a very twisted and unusual path to being where I am with you and guys like you or my colleagues in, in life now, because I didn't have a formal musical education. I didn't go to music school. I had this drum. I was a hippie living in a commune with Bonnie Raid's brother, David, who's also a musician and another guy who played bass and guitar. And the three of us have, that was my first little group. And we play in bars and restaurants and colleges in New Hampshire. We lived in New Hampshire. The whole commune moves to Northern California. These guys, my partners, they still looking at this as like a kind of a hobby thing. And I, by this time, I wanted to get serious. So I left the commune in Northern California and I moved to San Francisco and I began studying and taking lessons privately. And then that began my career, started playing in local bands uh, in the Bay Area, eventually joined a band um, in around 1976 called Night Flight uh, with Kim Plainfield, Steve Gabori and Lincoln Goins and two women singers. It was kind of a like a um, return to forever uh, type of band. So that band moved to New York in uh, the fall of 77. And then that began my professional career in New York. Before so you, before you became professional, I like to go back to 1968. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was going on musically in, in your brain? What were you hearing yeah. that influenced right. Well, okay. So uh, just a quick history of my, my, my um, involvement with popular music. We had a jukebox in the house down in the basement, all these 45s. Uh, I, I fell in love with Elvis when I was about five or six. Um, fell in love with the Beatles when I was about 10 or 11. Fell in love with Motown when I was about 14 or 15. And um, then when I was about 17, 18 and became a hippie, I was just all in on everything. You know, it was like the one of the greatest times of music ever. So... I was listening to, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, Four Tops, Miles Davis, and my 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 musical horizons just ex- super expanded. And I think when I when when Miles came out with Bitches Brew, that really opened up my 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 mind and my path in a different way. That's what was my introduction to jazz. So um, after I. I discovered Bitches Brew and I discovered Miles. I was like, okay, so who is this guy? This guy, Miles Davis. So then I discovered Miles and Herbie, Chick and Ayerto and um, all these guys, you know, that were in and around Miles' universe in the early 70s. So my mind was really expanded in terms of um, musical styles, everything except country. I never really got into country music especially when I was younger. Um, I'd also was not into uh, Sinatra and the crooners of my parents' generation at that time, but although I did come to embrace and fully love and just amazed by Frank Sinatra, honestly. So, um, yeah, that was kind of the beginning. There was a lot of stuff happening musically. Uh, You know, when I... I tell people when I moved to New York in 77, there was a radio station, WRVR, that was like, again, they would play like, um, 
Miles Davis, uh, uh, Santana, uh, you know, um, Stevie Wonder. It was all over the place. It was music in the 70s at that time was not a corporate entity to be cut up yet, broken into little pieces and sold in a proper bin, you know. It was just music. People were just making music and 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 exploring different styles and creating different style, blending stuff. And um, yeah, it was one one of the last of the pure moments bef- before music became corporate and radio stations started doing um, one of those where they have a format. get a bunch of people together and listen to something and say, "What do you think? What, what was that? What's that called?" Focus group or focus group. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So it was before focus groups, you know? And I remember a quote from Zappa around that time where he was, uh, uh, he was saying that, you know, before that, uh, where, where music became so corporate before that, it was just some old cigar smoking guy in a, in a desk who had no clue what you were doing. And didn't care as long as it's a soul. So he, they put out anything. Uh, Zappa said it started to get weird when, you know, the A&R guys thought they knew everything about music and knew exactly what needed to be, how music should be uh, presented and started putting their two cents in to the artist that that's, and then that moved to the, from the A&R guys to the focus groups. And then next thing you know, radio stations are, pigeonhole we only play this kind of music for this kind of audience and we play this kind of but no back in the 70s man it was a wide open experience speaking of that i was talking to clint again and and i think it was him that said people should study musicians when we talk about you know diversity now we didn't even think about diversity can you play your kunga? Could you play the cowbell? Could you play the drum set? Can you play guitar? Can you play the organ? Let's just get together and play. I don't care what you look like, what's between your legs. Can you play? And I see looking back at, you know, your era and even before that, and, you know, of course, my era coming up in the late seventies and early eighties, that was pretty much the, the, the ethic and the way that we did things. And I think it's kind of still the way we do things now until it's, you know, kind of forced upon us. But, you came from an era where there was a wide array of music styles, fashion. One of those uh, uh, seminal moments in the late sixties was something I found out about you that you were actually there as a, as an event called Woodstock (laughs) and you were actually, you're, you're featured, I think in the movie, correct? I'm in the movie. (laughs) Front row. (laughs) Tell me about your experience getting to that and what was it like actually being there? Leading up to that, that summer, uh, I was actually a theater major in college. I wanted to be an actor. So I was, um, I had, I was going to a a college in Maryland called Montgomery College. And uh, we had a troupe of actors uh, from, uh, Provincetown, Massachusetts, they had a theater called the Act 4 Theater. They came through our college to to do a weekend presentation of some play. And being a theater major in a small college like that, I was conscripted to help. So I met the people and worked with them that weekend. And the producer offered me an apprentice job that summer at the Act 4 Theater in Provincetown. 
So I took the job. I went up to Provincetown, Massachusetts to begin the summer of 69. But then I got involved with this actress from New York City who was doing a play there. And we had a little fling. And she said, come on, come on back to the city and hang out with me. So I did. I went back to New York City and was staying with her. And she was a member of the actor's studio, took me to the actor's studio. And I was thinking at that point, maybe I'll just not go back to college and just stay in New York City. And I'm, I'm already making connections, you know, meeting people that are at the actor's studio. And um, so, you know, um, I thought maybe I'll stay and do this. But while I was there, a friend of mine from Maryland, uh, I don't know how we got in touch, but we talked. And he said, look, there's a, a, a rock festival happening in upstate New York. We're going next week. Uh, would you like to go? We'll stop by and pick you up in New York City if you want to go. I said, yeah, yeah. So they came and got me. We went up to Woodstock. And we got there a day or two early. So we were able to set up a tent in a, in the woods next to where the event was yeah. happening. And so we were all settled in and we didn't have tickets. Um, but the first day, Friday, the fence was just a chain link fence. It was ripped ripped down and everybody just went in for free. So I'm there that first night and uh, Friday night, I'm kind of far from the stage and it starts to rain that evening. I go back to the tent and it pours all night. It was horrible. I was cold and wet and damp. And uh, I went with four friends and only one other friend had come back to the tent. So that morning, Saturday morning, we woke up and we were miserable. And we said, fuck this, let's, let's, go, let's go home. And I grabbed my backpack and we were walking out. We were going to walk to the road and hitchhike back to Maryland. That was our plan. So we got out in the field in front of the stage and it was a Saturday morning. The sun was out. People were playing Frisbees. And it was like beautiful. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I can't leave this. So I go put my backpack back in the tent and I come back in front of the stage and people hadn't gathered yet for the afternoon's performances. It was just people lounging about. I sat down about 20 yards in front of the stage Saturday morning at around 10 a.m. And I did not leave that spot until the festival was over Monday early afternoon. Wow. Two complete days in that one spot. I never went to the bathroom, except maybe I think I peed in a bottle. The only food I had was passed around. The only drink I had was passed around. Everybody's just passing. Because if I left, by the time the concert started Saturday afternoon, if I left that spot, I'm not getting back to within a mile of the stage. There was that many people. So I just stayed. So, But the funny thing is, uh, Saturday, I guess Saturday afternoon or Sunday, uh, Country Joe McDonald was coming on to kill some time. So he was there with his band, Country Joe McDonald and the Fish. That's what they were called. But so he was coming on to kill some time because every the whole schedule had gotten all messed up now. And so he comes out in his acoustic guitar and he's singing this song that was popular at the time. One, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. So he's singing that song. And um, somehow I'm close enough that the camera zooms in on me and I'm shirtless with a bandana on and one maraca in my hand and I'm playing. And I had no idea where that maraca came from or why I had it, but it was 
it was a heavy moment because of what 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 become what 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 became my life path. Who you know? Why was I shaking a maraca? Well, interesting part of the story is uh, this year, this past year, the Woodstock Museum contacted me through some friends, and they're doing. They wanted to record my recollections for the archives at the Woodstock Museum. So if you go to Woodstock Museum, you can go and look up my experience and see a videotape of me doing this story that I'm telling you now. (laughs) She told me that the band, there was a band, I can't remember the name, that came on earlier in the day, and their thing was to pass out percussion during their set to have people play along. So that must have been where the maraca came from. (laughs) Uh, The other heavy event that happened, Clay, was uh, Santana played that first sat that day Saturday, and I never heard of Santana, and I was so blown away and moved. It was another beyond life kind of experience to me. Just like was this is the shit. This is what I want to do. This is so. The interesting thing is on the tenth year anniversary of Woodstock, nineteen seventy nine, the day of the anniversary 10 years i was playing a gig in new york city with michael shreve <laughs> really yeah <laughs> so that was a to me that was a, such a heavy life giving you a yeah you're doing you're on the right path my kid my son this is where you belong this is where you need to be because that day 10 years ago when i saw michael playing on that stage playing that music and I might have had this skill with one maraca, but no other skills. And now, 10 years later, there I am with Michael and Luico Hopper, by the way, uh, doing wow. a gig. Yeah, I heard that they were relatively unknown back then. but And, and the way that they played, they just surprised everybody. And that's Their cool. album hadn't dropped yet. Wow. Bill Graham was their manager in the Bay Area, and he got them on the gig at Woodstock. Nobody knew who they were, but my God, they knew afterwards. They knew the next day. They knew that day for sure. And that really was was a big, big uh, push in the direction of where I wanted to go. So by the time I left Woodstock, um, I was done with acting. I was done with... I was ready to drop out, and I did drop out. I dropped out and moved to, uh, bought a piece of property in West Virginia with friends and started a commune. But, and that communal, wanting to have that communal lifestyle, uh, it directly came out of Woodstock. I just thought from that experience, we're the new generation. We're going to do things differently. We don't, you know, and I'm, there, there was a half a million people. It was not one fight, not one murder. I mean, we, you know, we were just like sharing food, sharing water, just like we're the new generation and fuck you and fuck your war and fuck your racism and fuck your sexism. We don't have to live by by those rules anymore. We're going to do it differently. We're going to we're going to live a moral life that we believe in. I came away with that. And so I didn't want to go back to school and become an actor. I didn't even want to be a part of the society. I dropped out. I was going to grow my own food, uh, learn how to farm, live off the land, be in touch with nature. So that was my intention. 
And uh, then one thing led to another. And like I said, I got a conga drum and blah, blah, blah. And then I became a musician. One thing led to another. Then you wind up cutting your hair off. You got a family. You work for Wall Street. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people actually did that. But I find it just fascinating how things were back then. And each generation thinks they're going to change the world. You know, my generation, you know, I guess through the introduction of rap music and in the in the eighties, you know, I don't think we 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 were going to change the world, but everyone has this ideal of what we're going to be. You know, I, I don't want to stay on the sixties, but it's a very important decade, and the contribution that your generation made, even you know, talking about how things were and going into the theater experience, your generation created things like hair, which you know, it was a groundbreaking uh, form of theater. Were you? Thinking at all about theater at that time? Before that, Clay, um, before that, my communal experience happened. Um, and I was in high school and into theater, and I, I wanted to be an actor. And I loved, there was, I, I probably wouldn't admit it to my friends, but I loved some musical theater. And I would listen to, uh, you know, um, soundtracks. I'd listen to Sound of Music. I'd listen to My Fair Lady. I love My Fair Lady. I love West Side Story. I'd listen to these soundtracks over and over. I mean, there was a part of me, and I kind of laugh at myself where I ended up in the theater in the latter part of my life as a musician, but there's always been this love of theater. Um, and, you know, when we would be standing on the side of the stage before we went on in Ain't Too Proud, and we're just standing there waiting for our moments. I can visualize it so clearly. And you're over there, you three guys doing your little thing. But just so often I'd have a moment where I just look at, I'd look at the rafters. I'd look at the local one cats. I'd look at what was going on stage and I'd just go, fuck, I love this. Me just too. Love this experience. It's so collaborative. And that's what I really, really dig about it. It's collaborative on a lot of levels where everybody is is a pro and really good at what they do. And it takes all of these different people in in their with their particular expertise to make this one production performance. And um, I think that's an amazing thing. And I've always, since I was a teenager, I've had I've been attracted to that. So, but then there were all these years where I was just a player. I was a, I was a, a studio musician, touring musician. And in those days, uh, we kind of looked down on Broadway, you know, in the seventies and eighties, uh, there was, there were hierarchies within the New York city musical com community. And, the, and the, uh, the community that I was involved with studio work and touring, we, thought that cats that couldn't do that would do Broadway. You were not good enough to be getting the calls to record jingles and soundtracks and records, or you're not getting calls to go out and tour with major artists. Then, and you, you weren't good enough to play in a, in a, um, in a symphony orchestra. Then you went to Broadway. That completely is completely changed. So, but in those days, that's the way I looked at it. I kind of went to Broadway accidentally 
I was living with a, a woman named Valerie Pettiford, an amazing dancer, singer, performer, still very active today in L.A. And she got a gig with doing this Bob Fosse show. Um, this was probably about 83, 84. She got a gig uh dancing in Bob Fosse's uh, show called The Big Deal. And Red Press was the um, uh, was in-house contractor. And she convinced Red to hire me. And um, again, Luico was playing bass. Uh, my old brother, Luico, we keep coming back and following and, and finding each other in new circumstances. Luico and Brian Brake was playing drums. And, um, you know, I when I came to New York, but I'm just going to put a pin in that for a second. When I came to New York, um, I got a job in the first year that I was here at the professional percussion center. Remember when I introduced you to Carol Steele, when we were doing a, yes, Carol was, uh, it was like the, the only person I knew in New York city when I came here, because I knew her from the Bay area. She had been in the Bay. She lived in the Bay Area. So Carol was working there. So Carol left within the first year I was there and got me the job. I was in charge of the Latin percussion section at the Professional Percussion Center. So while I was there, um, I got to meet so many cats. I mean, you know, guys that are from friends with today, you know, I, I met in 1978 at Pro Percussion. And that's when I started studying. Um, stick technique and reading technique with Norman Grossman, who taught there. We had studios. We had the the store was on the 12th floor, and on the 13th floor was uh, storage and studios for lessons. And, uh, you know, Joe Jones would hang out all day long. He would just be – he'd come in around 10 or 11, grab a stool, sit in front of the counter, and just hold court all day. I was – common so i got to hear all these great stories from from his era and and meet cats so it was a great experience but i i grew tired of it i grew tired of a day job and i just wanted to play and um i finally 1980 i guess it was 80 i i quit i said i'm just going to take the chance that i can survive as a as a, on my own playing. And it was another moment when life kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're on the right path. Whoever you might think is tapping me. I don't, it could be my higher self, my spirit guides or my imagination. So what happened one week after I quit my job, my day job, I get a call from Michael Shreve. Um, Michael Shreve again, he says, uh, I got called by the Rolling Stones um, they want me to record percussion on the new record. And I'd like to know if you would like to play with me. Cause I, you know, I don't have any hand drum, drum chops. So I said, yeah. So it was a week after I quit my day job. I, uh, I got hired to do emotional rescue with, um, wow. Yeah. So I just thought, well, this is life telling me, yes, you're on the right path. And I never, never did do a day job again the rest of my life. Like I, my path is, is it, I, I kind of came in the back door, you know, because I'm all, all my colleagues, they're all like fucking Juilliard graduates and, you know, Eastman and just like really studied. Of course, that's that's the business. But back in the 60s, not so much, you know. 60s there were a lot of garage bands 
and cats that came out of those garage bands, some of them went on to have careers, you know, both as sidemen and artists. And that's kind of the era and the place that I come from. So tell me about the studio scene back in the 1970s with Radio Registry. I remember speaking to Ray <laughs> Marchica and Buddy Williams about it. But uh, I forgot what the number was, 212 uh, I don't remember. J-U. You might have a couple of eights in there. Eight, eight, zero. <laughs> yeah, anyway, like speaking of Buddy, I uh, and the studio scene, I, I did my first album, my first New York recording album with Buddy. Or actually, I overdubbed, but Buddy was on it. And that was because we, we, as I told you, I came to New York with Night Flight this band and we were we're ready to play as soon as we got here and we started getting gigs and playing in little local clubs and fortunately for us and particularly for me um Angela Bofield came and saw us play and loved this band she just we were she was our biggest fan she would come to all our gigs and she had just gotten signed by GRP Records who was uh, Dave Grusin and Larry Rosen. And, um, you know, for those that don't know, Dave Grusin was, at the time, huge writer of uh, film scores and TV shows, and Larry Rosen was one of the best engineers in New York City. They formed a partnership and a record company. They signed Angela and Dave Valentine. Those were their first two signs. I don't know if Dave turned them on to Angie or Angie turned them on to Dave, but Angie and Dave grew up together in the Bronx, went to high school music uh, performing arts along with Buddy. And so Angela uh, wanted to hire me for her record. So that's it. Uh, My first recording session in New York was an overdub for Dave Grusin. And... um, the, the the tune was over the moon and uh, uh, under the moon and over the sky. Love that song. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful recording, and that was my first song that I ever what? recorded. Really? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So, but that opened the door to Dave Grusin, and that was like, you kidding me? First of all, they wanted to sign our group, Night Flight, and which we, we totally blew it. We we just. They we had a contract on the table. We kept asking for more money until because uh, we were young and stupid until finally they said, no, nah, forget it. Nonetheless, Dave continued to use me on a lot of recordings. And uh, that's where I met Buddy and Marcus Miller. And, you know, they were part of uh, Dave's staple of rhythm section cats. And so uh, once I started appearing on Dave's records, then I started getting other calls for jingles and other rec- recording dates and so forth. But so Dave Grusin was huge break for me in my career. And, um, you know, I might want to still to this day, one of the best tours of my life was uh, the GRP All-Stars in Japan. We did a live record, 1981, and that was with Buddy and Marcus and Bobby Broom and Dave Grusin and Don Grusin and Sadao Watanabe and Dave, Dave Valentine. Oh no, so this, um, so, yeah, I guess that was bad. And uh, we did a live record with the Osaka Symphony. Beautiful record. 
anyway, that tour was amazing. And because of that record and because of Dave Bruce, it opened a lot of doors for me. And then I had that experience where uh, Red hired me because of my girlfriend, Valerie, to do uh, the big deal in 1984, I think. And that was my first Broadway experience. Um, I didn't really like it that much. I, I just thought it was, well, I'll do this for a while. The show didn't really run. It only ran about three or four months. I never thought that that would be part of my world. Um, but then in the late eighties, I had an experience where I was talking to a colleague about another friend and he said something to like, Oh yeah, he's, he's just going to retire now. You know, he's just going to collect his pension and he's, he's, you know, he's been doing, um, you know, he's been doing Les Mis all these years. And so his pen, I'm like, what? what, what do you mean pension? Was, we have a pension in the, in the musicians union. You didn't know that. And I was like, not really. He goes, yeah, we have a pension. And every time you do a recording session, every time you do a union date, there's a contribution made into your pension. And when you become a certain age, you have access to that uh, money every month, the rest of your life, like every month for the rest of your life. They go, yeah. So I said, oh, Broadway, light bulb, every day, contribution, contribution. So that's when I started turning my attention to, and, and at, as it occurred, it was also at a time when the drum machine was being introduced into our world. And a lot of my work has, has gone away. I mean, I would get called for a jingle to come in and do a backbeat on a tambourine. No more. No more little kibasa. No more little shakers. No little triangle hits. These were all now being done on the Lindrum by Sammy Marandino. <laughs> Yeah, instead of uh, seeing it as a threat, he just basically took it and and adapted Absolutely. it. Absolutely. But, I, that was a huge lesson for me to watch him do that, to see how he did that. And um, but he also you have to have a certain kind of mind. You know, yes. he, Sammy has the right mindset to, to be a programmer. He he was great at it. And at a time when nobody else was. And he also had the insight in to see that this is the thing mm. right now. A lot of, like you said, a lot of drummers were, oh, fuck that shit, man. That's, it's going to take work away from me. Right. It never sounds as good as a real drum set and all that. But Sammy made it work. And, but so I saw, okay, a good third of my work is drying up now um, because they would hire Sammy to program. Or there was a couple other cats besides Sammy, but, you know, he'd, he'd come in, he'd program the drums, he'd program the percussion, and I wouldn't get called. So I thought, okay, I can see the attractiveness of Broadway now. So what do I need to do? Well, I really need to shore up my reading, which was, you know, my reading was on a jingle level, you know, 16 bars and, uh, you know, mm. not, nothing too challenging. But now I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to be doing this, I, so I, you know, just spent a lot more time working on my reading, a lot more time working on my stick technique and, you know, the interesting thing, Clay, is that maybe maybe more so because of my lifestyle, how I had come into the music business, but I was, by the time I was in my mid-30s, mid, uh, in, in the 80s, the mid-80s, I was all, already a successful player. I was 
making a living, getting calls and high-profile gigs. And I kind of became um, lazy, you know. I didn't work at growing so much. I just kind of, uh, I'll get the calls and I'd get the calls and I'd do the gigs. But I was into playing, you know. I was into like hanging out and playing and having fun. And I, I, I really stopped woodshedding. And I think that really came back to bite me in my ass at a certain point. But um, and then I woke up to the fact that there's never an end to what you what you can learn in music. There's never you never reach the point where, okay, I got it now. I mean, you can think that. And I did think that, but it will come back and bite you on the ass. And so that happened. And then in the early 90s. Um, and then I rededicated myself to uh, growing as a player and still at it, as, as you are. The first musical that you did, I can't remember what you said it was. It was called The Big Deal. It was Bob Fosse's last original show. Oh, wow. And then you started doing them regularly. What was the... Well. <laughs> Again, that's kind of a backdoor kind of thing. So Red hired me for that 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 day, but he never called me again. You know, uh, he hired me for the big deal, and I never heard from Red again. And um, so then, uh, a guy I was playing in his band named Bob Telson, um, he wrote the music for a new uh, show. It was a Lincoln Center production, a limited run based on a book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez called The uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold. So Bob wrote all the music and he wanted, um, you know, he got his, some of his players to be a part of the, the, the band and uh, the orchestra. And uh, that, that was wrought with problems, but nonetheless, that was another foot in the door. And there's a really interesting side story to this that I'll tell you. Um, when I, Bob wanted me to meet the director, Graziella Danielle, because he wanted to just wanted me to meet her. And, and because in the development phase, the workshop phase, Bob was suggesting that she used me instead of a drummer. So I go and I meet Graziella and, um, she liked my look, my physical look. And she said, would you be willing to audition for a role? I have a role in mind for you. And the role that she had me audition for was the husband of the lead actress in the show, who was Sandra Santiago. So she, who I end up marrying so she asked me to audition for the role of Sandra's husband. I didn't I didn't get the job, but I then in the end I really did get the job. <laughs> That's fascinating, man. Yeah, that was fascinating. But Sandra was married at the time. And um but I because I was doing the workshops, I got to know all the actors, as you know, you've done workshops and you know you're every day with the cast. And so I got to be friendly. We got to be friends um, through that experience. But that still didn't quite open the door. But nonetheless, um, Red was the contractor for that. And this time, Red did call me for another show after that. 
And um, that was bring on the noise, bring on the funk. So he initially hired me, but then before the show even started rehearsing, I get the call. Eh, hey, listen, kid, um, you know, because I was in my 40s, but to, for Red, I was still a kid. Uh, listen, kid, un unfortunately, they decided to make a change and they're going to use uh, these bucket drummers instead of a percussionist. So uh, I got hired for Bring on the Noise, but I never got to play a note. And that was another Luico gig, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And Leroy Cloudin was the was the drummer on the gig. He was Bob Kelson's drummer in his band. So bro Bob brought him in. He had no Broadway experience either. But then because Red had contracted that show, Red called Leroy and me for Bring on the Noise. And then, of course, I got cut. So how did you meet Red Press? He he was the uh, contractor for the uh, Bob Fosse show my girlfriend was doing. And she said to him, hey, you should hire my boyfriend on this show. Did he hire you for anything after that, after bringing the noise? No. I mean, even though he didn't get it. but No, he never did hire me. No, he never did hire me for another show. Did you work on the uh, Civil War, the show? I did work on the Civil War with uh, Warren Oates. Yes. And that was a John Miller hire. Tell me about getting into the shows like that and Brooklyn and, and Tarzan. Right. Well, John Miller called me. I, I had to audition for uh, the Civil War. And so he called me into audition and I go in and uh, I play with, you know, the writers and stuff. And I played some congas, some, some tambourine. Oh, by the way, I knew John Miller from the jingle scene. Um, John and I worked for a, a, a jingle writer, uh, it, almost pretty exclusively. So John knew me as a, as a session player and, it, you know, we'd work together doing, doing jingles together. So John calls me and says, Hey, you want to audition for this Broadway thing? I said, okay. So I come in and I play for them and they hire me. Then when I show up and I start to have to read the stuff. Man, that was shit that was beyond me, bro. There was like some marching snare drum part I had to play. And I was like, oh, my God. And the reading was really pressing my limits of my reading ability and so uncomfortable. So I go to Robbie Amin and uh, I say, man, can you help me with this stuff? Because so I took some lessons with Robbie. Robbie helped me with with this. I learned the marching stuff from him and I was a bit, I was able to pull it off. And this has happened to me a couple times where um, I, I got a show and there was some timpani or there's some orchestra bells or, um, you know, something that's on the classical side that I had no skills and I had to up my game, but I up my game specifically for that show. So, you know, I'd learn the timpani parts for that show. I'd learn the Glock parts for that show. Um, but I didn't continue to like go home in woodshed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, uh, John hired me for the big, uh, for the Graziella show. No, no, that was red. Uh, for the civil war, John, I mean, civil war. And then he hired me for Brooklyn. Yeah. He hired me, hired me for about seven or eight shows. Wow. John's, John's been a bit of an angel for me. So getting into something like Tarzan, in between these shows, like Civil War, Brooklyn, and Tarzan, and Burn the Floor, and things like that, were you subbing at any shows? No. 
I never, I've only subbed on one show in my life, and that was On Your Feet uh, for Javier a few years ago. Um, I never wanted to sub. And so, but I was still, you know, I was touring. I was, I was touring with Vanessa Williams from early 90s to, you know, about 20 plus years. And then I was touring with Luther Vandross from the end of the 90s into the early 2000s. I was touring with Michael Franks. I was, you know, Broadway was still kind of a, well, if it comes, great. But mostly I was still making my 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 most of my living on the road. For somebody like me, when I started going into Broadway, I started thinking of myself in the same way as when I went into a theater in St. Louis with Gregory Hines and I come into the stage for the first time and all the local one people are there setting up. Hey, what do you need? What do you need, Roger? What can I get you? Let me help you. You know, you're, you come in there and you're a star or star ish. You're with the, the, the talent and you're treated like that. And I'd gotten used to that's the way I was. That's the way I expected to be treated. You walk into a Broadway house you are no more important than somebody in the wardrobe department sewing a dress. And so if you think you are, you're, you're about to have a rude awakening. You know what I mean? And so that happened to me a couple of times where I really had to get used to the fact that I'm just a tiny little cog in a big machine. And I'm no more important than sound, wardrobe, makeup, or anybody else, especially in terms of the way the producers look at this show. They could care less who I played with. Or nobody's coming to see the show because they heard that I'm playing. So nobody. So that's a whole nother adjustment that a musician has to make from my era coming to the pit. Nowadays, I'm sure, you know, people from the, you know, younger generation that graduate from college and start at the end, like Warren Oates would say, they don't have that attitude where they expect somebody to be kissing their ass and and helping them set up their stuff or whatever. So when you have other shows that you've worked on in the past where you're together and the chemistry isn't there, how do you navigate that? I have not. I've never had a show where the chemistry was not good. And part of it is <laughs> never been on a show that ran very long. <laughs> so we didn't have enough time to start hating each other. <laughs> when I got the Motown gig, at first, it looked like it was going to be a hit. I don't know if you remember that, but the first couple of months, it really looked like it was going to be a hit. And I remember, oh, maybe five, six months into the run, I ran into Rolando Morales and I said, Rolando, man, how do you do it night after night playing the same thing? How do you not go crazy? And he said something that was really important to me. He said, I don't play the same thing. He says, I go in every night. It's a new gig and I play what I play. And I was like, wow, that's it. That's the key. First of all, you have to honor what you're playing. I mean, you know, it's just, it's not up for interpretation. Okay. But within <laughs> that, within that, and I'm sure you heard me play night after night. I don't hear the same fucking parts every night. If I hear something different and I feel that it's appropriate, I'm going to play it. And that's keeps me being in the moment, being spontaneous. And that really went a long way to help me from going crazy of playing the same thing every night. 
how do you view being in the pit and playing a certain thing, certain musical style, certain musical moment? How do you compare that to being in the studio? Do you, some people say like playing in the pit is like doing a recording session every night. You're trying to get it right. But it's never well, it quite is, there. especially in, in the situation like Ain't Too Proud, where we're all separate rooms, you know. So, like, I'm I'm experiencing the show with headphones. I don't see anybody except Javier in that. It's just me and Javi and everybody else I'm hearing. So, in that sense, it's like a recording session every night. And also, you're trying to be that precise. Um, but I prefer when it's possible to be in the same room with everybody. I, I often thought when we were doing Ain't Too Proud, how much fun it would be if we could all just be in one big room playing and being able to have eyesight. And when somebody plays something to be able to look at them and acknowledge that it was, that was killing. And I'm, you know, I miss that. Um, and, but as a percussionist, a lot of my studio work has been overdubs anyway, but I really, um, I relish it when I can play with the rhythm sec- section in the recording studio for sure. Burn the floor. What was that show like? Burn the floor was really, uh, wow. That was a challenge, man. Um, they, this was a touring group. They were out there on the road in the world touring with the drummer, Henry Soriano, great drummer. And um, it was a cast of, ballroom dancers that were just killing, playing popular music. Um, And so we were playing with tracks. So there was just four live musicians. There was Henry on drums, me on percussion. We were on stage all the time on risers. And then there was Dave Mann on saxophone and Earl Manian on guitar and violin. But most, uh, um, so... They didn't really have their chart thing together. They'd sent me a couple charts in advance, but they were really unorganized in that sense. So when I go into rehearsal, like we go into Carol's Sound, I think we had three days of rehearsal and then we're in the theater. I only had half of the charts. They're like getting me the charts. Oh, we're getting this printed out and then we'll get you that chart. So it was, and then they said, you can't have any charts on stage. Because you're on stage, you're visible the whole time. They don't. They didn't want a music stand. So, and the first number, bro, was this elaborate percussion drum thing, where it starts off with playing all these figures together in the dark, you know, uh, and then the lights come up and 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 you see the dancers. But wow, it was so hard because. I had to memorize all these figures. And so I had to have these little cheat sheets, you know, little piece of paper with a rhythm printed tape to the drum here and another one to there. It was really, really difficult for me, man, that, that, uh, until I, until I got it down, but it was, uh, stressful. And you went on to Priscilla, queen of the desert. I went on to Priscilla and that had its challenges as well, because it was some timpani and glockenspiel stuff. It was a little um, beyond my skill set at the time. So I remember like in my rehearsals with Warren, this was another show, but another Australian show, by the way. So it was uh, 
burn the floor. Another based in Australia had their success. Now they're touring the world. Now they're coming to New York. So I remember going to dinner with Warren after one of the first two rehearsals, and we both thought we were going to be fired. It's just like, um, because my, you know, my timpani work was sloppy and, um, and my glockenspiel work was sloppy, but they hung in there with me. And by the time we opened, by the time we started doing shows, I had it, I had it down. Speaking of having it down, Motown, the musical, what was that experience at Motown like? Um, that was a great experience. That was a really, really fun band. Super good, super fun. Joseph Jobert as a musical director gave us so much freedom to fuck around. I mean, <laughs> it was, there was a lot of laughter in that pit. Let me put it that way. And as long as nobody fucked up the music, as long as the grooves were there and there were no mistakes, Joe, Joe was really cool with it. I, I really admired that about him. And so it was a really fun show to play. We had a great room for the band and we decorated it. We got some chairs in there and the couches. And, and I remember one, it was a long day, you know, and one of those like tech days, you know, and uh, we had been rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. And now we're going down to the, to the band room to chill out and we get there and Barry Gordy is laid out on the couch asleep. And we're like, oh, yeah, now what? Buddy walks right into the room. Hey, Barry, shakes him awake. Is this the band room, man? You got to go. You got you to get out of here. I was just like, Buddy Williams, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, man. As a percussionist, have you had many chances or opportunities or do you find many times where you're asked to play drum set? There's been an occasion and my greatest dread would be that you don't show up and they say, Roger, you got to sit on the set till Clayton gets here. It's my greatest fear. I think I would just say, no, forget it. I ain't doing it. Get somebody else. No way. Because People are going to remember. They're going to. They're not going to think if, when you fuck up and blow the groove. They're not going to think. Well, he's a great percussionist, you know. But they're going to think, "Ooh, Roger really fucking fucking blew that shit." That's you know. That's so. I don't. I don't want to be remembered. I don't want to have that experience. You know, it's all about the feet. I, I can sit down on a drum set and play a little bit, but you know, my feet are extremely limited. Mm. And then trying to get the four four pieces to all coordinate doing different shit. I haven't had a lot of experience doing that. So, no, I don't want to sit down on a drum set. Doing things authentically. Taking your experience, hitchhiking over to San Francisco, coming to New York, going to Woodstock, listening to Santana, going on the road with Vanessa and Luther and playing sessions. Then when you get to 2017, you have all of that and you can just bring all that and bring it into Broadway. What are some of the things other than those musical experiences that you would say that are really important to be a success playing Broadway shows? Some of your other guests like Javier have touched upon this, but he he's so right when he said, you know, 
besides your musical skills, let's just put that off to the side for a second. I mean, you have to be have the skills to compete on for the 18. You got to be able to play with the 18, just like you said. Um, but besides that, there's the whole social, professional interaction stuff that goes on. And this is can be tricky for some people, especially if it's not in their nature to be outgoing or anything. But you really, it's really important in all music that I've played, Broadway or not, to really come with a positive attitude and be friendly and be careful what you say. Realize that, you know, you really have to pay attention and to not step on somebody's toes, um, to not go beyond outside of your lane and to be somebody that your colleagues are happy to see when you walk in the door and um, look forward to sharing a musical experience with. So social skills are important. You don't have to go overboard. You don't have to like uh, try to make everybody love you, you know, just be yourself, but leave your shitty attitude outside. No matter how hard your day is, um, realize this is a big collaboration and your part of it is goes beyond what your your parts on your charts are. It's what is your part as a human being, a part of this band, a part of this production. So the skills, um, I actually did a series of videos for Latin percussion called uh, Being a Pro, What It Takes to Be a Pro. I deal with this a lot. You, you know, and I learned this from watching some of the masters like Sammy Figueroa, how he could walk into a session and room and 10 minutes later have everybody laughing and just so happy that they're there with Sammy. You know, I saw that what that personality can do for a, for a, uh, a date or for a career. And I realized that's something that needs to be developed. And they don't talk about that at Berkeley. At least I don't assume that they do. I don't, I never heard anybody say that they do, but you're, you know, nobody wants to play with an asshole. Somebody's always expecting there's going to be an asshole. So who's it going to be? I hope it ain't me. Uh, so, you know, you got to come in, come in with, come into a scene with the, with, you know, with the right social skills. Um, and if it's not in your nature to be outgoing, if you're a quiet person, shy person, that's perfectly fine. Just don't be, don't bring negative stuff to it. You know, just don't, don't be bitching and complaining about other people or don't, like I said, don't stay in your lane. Um, yeah, it's important. If, if you were to do this all over again in your professional career as a percussionist, what would you do differently? I would have worked harder. Not played so much in my thirties. I would have, I would have spent way more time writing, uh, learning digital composition, um, le- developing my <clears throat> class- classical skills. I fucked around too much, but I was able to get away with it because I was good. People liked me, and so they were still hiring me. But as I look back on my life, I wish I had spent less time chasing 
fun and more time in the woodshed. Chasing fun, meaning taking uh, acid on a, on a hilltop. <laughs> no, not so much that. <laughs> I tell you, there was a good period when Sammy Figueroa was was my best friend for many years, and Madro, Manolo Badrena, and almost every day we would meet at Sammy's apartment at around ten, eleven in the morning, and we'd listen to music for a couple hours. Then we go out, we go to the drum stores, we go to bookstores, we go to Macy's, try to pick up chicks, we go get something to eat, we'd end up at 7th Avenue South, hanging out, hanging out, hanging out. All of that stuff was good for my career um, in some ways. Uh, you know, Manolo, Padrena, Sammy Figueroa, and me, we did like six or seven albums together, you know, Blondie, Cheat, just like big records uh, as a as the three of us hired to play together. Um, and so there was, there was great, a lot of great stuff came out of that, that those years of hanging out, but those are, that's the time that you asked me if I regret anything, maybe that I didn't work harder in those years. I had started to learn to play guitar. I was, you know, taking lessons. I was learning keyboard. I just, I got, I got kind of lazy with all of that stuff. And then life, when you get to be in your 40s and life gets way more complicated. Now you're thinking about your health care and you're thinking about your uh, life insurance, if you're married and kids and all this stuff gets really complicated. So uh, it's just, it would became, an, you know, just enough of a challenge to maintain my skills um, let alone develop other instruments. That that's a, the good time to do that is when you're young, younger, because you've got the energy, um, you've got the ambition. Or you should, if you want to be a professional, and you don't have as much complicated life baggage to deal with. So those years, I kind of, I I think I played a little bit too much, and I would have liked probably to have worked a little harder. That being said. I've enjoyed all of my life. Um, I've I've had a great career, and I never really ever had trouble getting work. And um, now I'm 72 years old, and I'm in a different phase. And um, you know, I I don't have the ambition now to get my timpani chops together or get get my uh, learn to play vibraphone or write music. Or I'm like now, I just want to do things that I like doing and enjoy life on a day-to-day -day basis because I'm running out of time. I see so many, a lot of my colleagues have already checked out and, um, you know, I want to look at life every day as uh, what gives me pleasure. You know, if it gives me pleasure to cook a turkey, then I'll do that instead of woodshedding and worrying about uh, my chops. You know what I mean? I'm going for pleasure now. And, I still practice. I still like to practice. I'm, I'm learning Javier show right now. Um, a beautiful noise. I'm going to sub for him on that. So I'm doing, you know, and I do my homework and, but again, I'm, I'm at, at a certain age and you'll see this yourself. I'm sure you're going to get to a certain point where you're less concerned about the gigs and more concerned about enjoying the amount of time you have left on the planet. The difference between 
recording sessions you did in the 70s and 80s and 90s and the diff, uh, the recording sessions you done for The Boy From Oz, Priscilla, Brooklyn, Motown, Tarzan, and Ain't Too Proud. What are the biggest differences or are there any well, differences? The biggest difference is digital recording, obviously. Uh, when I was doing recordings, you know, back in the 70s, um, you couldn't just bump the backbeat. You couldn't nudge it. You know, you had to re if it was off a little bit, you had to re-record it, you know, replace it. So um, that's the biggest difference is digital recording has allowed you to uh, fix your mistakes easier and and not spend so much time doing doing the recording. Um, In terms of being in the studio and like the, the boy from Oz, that was all overdubs. I actually created a samba school for them for uh, that that number they did uh, in Rio. I think it's called something about Rio. You know, um, there was a whole breakdown, so I like created a whole samba school for them, and that was um, that was for Michael Keller. And so then Michael, when Michael saw me do that, then then he hired me for Tarzan after that. So that was a that was that session in in particular had consequences. Um, and then Michael asked me who would I recommend for a second percussion. And I recommended a few people, including Javi and Javi got the gig. And then so that Javi and I got to play together in a booth, like we did at Ain't Too Proud. And, um, but we, we started playing a lot before and after, you know, just grooving a lot. You'd hear us sometimes doing that, ain't too proud. We were, we were, we'd gotten it a little more under control, but in Tarzan, we probably, we drove a lot of our bandmates kind of crazy. I have to admit that um, <laughs> I, I'm more conscious of that now, but what came out of that is we realized we'd love playing together. We have a very similar approach to percussion and we decided to do a record together. So when, Mo, when Tarzan closed, the, we started, we went right in the studio and started writing and recording together. And then uh, we, we did an album called um, Behind the Mask. Tribal Sage is the name of the, we called ourselves Tribal Sage, me and Hav. And the name of the album is Behind the Mask. Right now, are you working on any other projects like that? Or are you just, uh, like you said, you're... you're no, still- I'm not. Yeah, because, you know, unfortunately, we did that album in 2000. We made that album in 2006, 2007, and that was the beginning of the music business collapsing. And I realized after the record was out there, it's really not much more than a calling card anymore. You know, it's like a website or calling card. There's it's getting that music played, building a career on that music, doing a second album, um, you know, the expenses involved, the time involved, and the payoff was just not there anymore, you know? So I kind of lost the um, incentive. And, and it's not like my, I've got so many songs banging around in my head, I got to get them out, you know? Writing is a, it's a, it's a task. It's a chore. It's a, it takes a lot of concentration, energy, time. And um, so, yeah, I think that's done. I think that's done. I don't have an ambition to put out another record. Um, and, you know, I'm still getting calls to do uh, as much work as I want to do. But when I'm not working, I don't stress anymore. But 
I'm lucky because I'm now at the age where I'm getting my pension and getting my social security. So I don't have that pressure anymore. So I don't want to say it like, oh, you know, just do what you want to do and enjoy life. I'm lucky enough that I don't have to so much worry about income. When you were a shareholder on your Broadway shows, what did you look for in subs? Well, okay. Um, that's been an evolving experience over my life. Um, there's there's a couple things involved. One, who do I owe? You know, who do I owe? In terms of, um, like, Steve Kroon brought me into replacing him in Luther's band. He also brought me into replacing him in Ron Carter's band. So I have... I have a debt there. So he's not really a Broadway guy, but I wanted to give him a chance. So there's that debt thing. Who who have I subbed for? Who do I owe? All within the very tight frame of can you do the job or not? I mean, I'm not going to bring anybody in that I that I owe that I don't feel can do a great job. But that's who I look for. And then um, I look for a couple of young cats if possible that are really hungry that uh because you're not always going to have your guys especially if they're busy players like javier is sub for me on a couple shows but if i get a show am i gonna i'll offer it to javi because he's my boy and if he wants to do it i'd be thrilled but the fact is he's such a busy guy i don't expect him to be very available so i would like to have a couple of young guys that are just breaking into the business, which now I actually have from doing um, on your on your feet at the paper mill. Uh, the other percussionist there is a young cat, and so yeah, I saw, he's great. I forgot his name. Yeah, you know Emmanuel. Yeah, I met him when I was out there in the summer doing Sister Act. Really, really solid guy, good person too. And I didn't get a chance to really know him, but I like the way. By he the way, him. that's that's the other factor. Uh, I got. I have to like you, you know. One, I have to know that you're going to be, you're going to do the job and do it well. Two, I have to know you're not going to undercut me in any way, like uh, try to talk to them, kiss up to the musical director, so maybe you hire him the next time instead of Roger. So I have to know that they're they're they can play the job well one that they're not a threat in any way to undercut me um three that i like them personally and i'm glad to help them like with emmanuel solano i like him so he's a young guy and yeah why wouldn't i want to help i like the guy so i'm going to call emmanuel and um so yeah all those aspects like i brought danny sedownick in uh danny had never played a broadway show I didn't know Danny, but um, when we did when we did it, I I thought I want to I, I I want a guy that's not coming from doing Broadway shows. I want a guy that's been out there in the world playing these grooves, you know, that's that's been working with major R and B artists that like Croon and Danny. So those are my first two choices. That's specific to uh, Ain't Too Proud because I wanted somebody that has had experience playing that type of R&B music. I got to say, though, this last band that we were both a, a part of uh, uh, was just, it, it was the best for me. It was, I, for me, it was so much fun to come to work 
And that was because of the music, but it was because of the people. I just dug everybody. There's not one person in this band that you, I felt I, you could take me and that person and go have dinner, the two of you. There's not one person I wouldn't enjoy their company. So that was, that's not all, always that usual. So I, I, that was great. I really appreciated that. And so many different personalities too, really. Yes. Yeah. We did have different personalities. John Miller did a great job of, um, of making a, you know, a, uh, a woke blend of, of musicians that were all great and that all got along. And if people want to find you on the interwebs, where can they find you? RogerSquatero.com is my website. And um, the only social media thing I do is Facebook and not even that much. I'm not, again, I'm not really ambitious anymore. So I don't have a, a, an agenda for getting my shit out there. Yeah. I'm just grooving. So no agenda and you're not going to run for office in 2024. Right? Not going to run for office. I just want to stay alive and uh, continue to eat well, stay warm, have friendships and enjoy being on the planet. Thank you very much, Roger. And it was really nice talking to you and getting to know your story. I never, never really knew a lot about your, your history. It's fascinating hearing where you came from and where you are today. Thanks, Clay. By the way, you're really great at this. And congratulations on expanding your universe. Um, I'm, I'm sure this is going to continue and go further. You really know what you're doing. Thank you, sir. I really and, appreciate it. And also, it. let me put this out there, that I love playing with you in whatever situation we've had. You're a great drummer. You own the pocket, and uh, you're a groove to work with. Thank you, man. I, I hope you have a chance again. I hope so, too. That's All right, brother. Take care. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash bd101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash bd101. We appreciate any support you can give. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast.